0: weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences. Online at scienceandthecity.org. Today is Friday, October 3rd, 2008. I'm Elena Rangi. Renowned psychologist Philip Zimbardo has a theory about the way we perceive time. Some of us live in the present, Some of us live in the past, and some of us live in the future. The paradox, says Zimbardo, is that we don't realize which time zone dominates our brains, yet every day we make decisions based on the way we perceive time. Zimbardo recently spoke at the Science in the City series. Today, you'll hear the highlights. And don't be surprised if you come out thinking a little bit differently about time.
1: Time perspective is the study of how we each divide the flow of our personal experiences or partition them into time zones. The obvious time zones are past, present, and future, but we do it automatically and without thinking. These time frames vary between cultures, between social classes, and most important, they vary between individuals. I'm gonna present data which shows that time perspective is one of the most reliable, significant differences between individuals. But what's important is they become biased because we overuse some and we underuse others. And the goal of my whole talk, and actually of the Time Paradox book, is to encourage you to develop a balanced time perspective and give up your biases. I'm Philip Zimbardo. I'm a professor emeritus at Stanford University, where I've been teaching since 1968. And before that, I taught at Yale and New York University and Barnard and Columbia College. So every day, your life is filled with many decisions. The most basic one is work or play. Study or go out with friends if you're a college student or at work or go out with friends if you're at work. Eat more pasta or go on the diet. Drink more wine before driving. Eat sweets but knowing you're a diabetic. Have sex now wait till you're married. Practice safe sex or just do it. Smoke more now and risk cancer later. These are a few of the decisions you have to make. What I want to say is every one of these decisions follow the same basic model. Give in to temptation versus delay of gratification. So how does your time perspective influence these and other decisions you make every day? The model I'm working with is you have to make a decision now, and you're going to take action based on that decision. For some people, what influences that decision is the immediate stimulation what the stimulus looks like, what it tastes like, what it feels like. Part of that stimulation is other people. What are other people doing? What are they saying? Part of the stimulation is your hormonal urges. What are you feeling from inside? What are you feeling from the immediate situation? And if you're the kind of person who makes decisions primarily based on this, we're going to call you a present-oriented person. For other people, in the same exact decision matrix, They ignore all of this and they focus on memories. When was I in a situation like this in the past? What did I do? How did it feel? How did it work out? And for those people, they approach almost every situation with the same way. Ignore the present, focus on the past. We're going to call those people past oriented. For others, the past is irrelevant, the present is irrelevant. They are focusing on what are the anticipated consequences. If I do A, what happens with B? What's the probability that this will work out? They are doing cost-benefit analysis. They are doing probability analysis. They are thinking in terms of if-then. And if that's your mode of thinking, we're going to call you future-oriented. What's interesting is the past and future are similar in that they are abstractions. They don't exist except here. You create the future in your imagination. And we're going to argue that you create a lot of your past. A lot of the research that you know by Elizabeth Loftus is past is largely a reconstruction. Much of what you remember of the past never happened. Or it never happened the way you think it. And it also shows, her research shows, how easy it is to manipulate your memory of the past. Although I'm talking about these as if they were types, it in fact is a continuum. And the scale I'm going to talk to you about gives you a set of scores, profiles, so that it tells you the extent to which you are past, present, future oriented on each of these dimensions. So it's not all or none, but it's if you tend to overuse one of these and you tend to underuse the others, uh, I'm going to argue you could be in trouble. We've developed a scale called the Zimbardo Time Perspective Inventory, which is 56 items, which when you take it, and you can take it in the book I wrote, The Time Paradox, but it's also free on the website, and the website is called thetimeparadox.com, You get five scores. One score is your future orientation score. But there are two ways to be present-oriented and two ways to be past-oriented. For some people, when they have to make a decision, what determines their decision is memories of the past that they bring into the present. It's, when have I been in this situation before? What did I do? How did it work? Some of those people always bring only the good things, that when they're seeing somebody, you remind me of my sister that I loved, or other people, you you remind me of my teacher who I hated. And so they color the present through these lenses, either rose-colored lenses or you know, gray-colored lenses. You, there's two ways to be present-oriented. You could be what we usually think about as hedonistic, meaning you love sex, drugs, rock and roll. You love the good times. You have lots of friends, you have lots of energy. Or you can be present fatalistic. And fatalistic means you have a mentality which says it doesn't pay to plan. I don't control anything. My life is controlled by fate. So you get five scores past positive, past negative, present hedonistic, present fatalistic, and future-oriented. There's actually a second way to be future-oriented, and we have a separate scale that measures that, and that's what we call the transcendental future. For a lot of people within some religions, life begins after death. Life begins when you are in heaven with God or with Allah and so forth. And so a lot of their life is really in preparation for the afterlife. And so these six time zones, I argue, influence most of your everyday decisions, little ones as well as big ones, and the reason I call the book the Time Paradox is we're saying time perspective influences all these decisions, but you're unaware of it. So let's take an in-depth look at these five time perspective uh, factors. Uh, we have a separate scale for transcendental future. So here are the five factors. The scale is fifty-six items. I've been working on this for more than twenty years. That is. Uh, we have many more items, we give it out to different groups, we score it, we factor analyze it. And we keep refining the scale until we have this future orientation, present hedonism, present fatalism, and then the transcendental. So you get five profile scores, one of each of these, and actually a six one for transcendental. And so the questions are like, it gives me pleasure to think about my past. I like family rituals and traditions that are repeated regularly. If you, if you say, these are characteristic of me, and there's a whole set of these, then you're going to score high on the past positive. On the other hand, I have taken my share of abuse and rejection in the past. Painful past experiences keep being replayed in my mind. If you answer that that's characteristic, you're going to have a high score on, on past negative. So for some people, it's remembering the good old times with nostalgia, keeping mementos. These are the people in the family who keep the the photo albums, who keep bringing them out, and these are the parents who keep your report cards forever and and your essays and all the horrible artwork you did as a kid, but it links them to the past. Uh, These are people who like family rituals, holiday feasts. In many cultures, the past is kept alive through storytellers. There are people whose job it is to tell stories, and the stories are almost always about the glories of this tribe, of this community in the past, because the goal is to keep kids living in the community. And the goal is to to bring in the ancestors. Again, it's hero stories that they bring in. They reify the past. On the other hand, for lots of people, you're bringing in the negatives, all the bad experiences that happened, or your memory of the bad experiences. And these people get trapped in recycling that. This is the path to clinical depression. These are the people that clinicians will be seeing. I do things impulsively. I try to live my life as fully as possible one day at a time. That's the view of present hedonist. Fate determines much of my life. Since whatever will be, will be, it doesn't really matter what I do. So que you know, I don't control my life. It controls me. So the present hedonists, I do things impulsively, making decisions for the moment. Their to-do lists are empty. There's no hands on the clock. In fact, we have research even among Stanford students. They tend not to wear wristwatches. And they tend to like to gamble. We all start life as present hedonists at the breast or at the bottle. And in most cultures, the society says, we're going to indulge it, we're going to let you play. The problem is, look at this kid, He's just total abandoned. But any parent looks at this and say, oh my god, look at this rock. If he doesn't jump far enough, he, it's over for him. And In fact, if you're present hedonistic and you go for the moment, sometimes you're going to miss and hit the rock. But they don't really care about that. Uh, sensuality blended with intellectuality. That was part of the where the hippie movement moved to Marin, California. But for present hedonists, the thing they live for is friends, and they are their best friends. They're the only people you want to have to a party because they're never checking their watch. They're never saying what they've got to do next. They're not upset about all the stuff they have at home, the work they've got to get back to. But these are the people who get trapped by video games that spend eight, ten hours. It used to be just adolescent kids, but now it's expanding up into society. With This is a male thing, with men, even college students, getting trapped playing video games. If you go to any casino, you'll see psychologists clearly were involved, not a clock in a casino. There's no windows. And so you get trapped in that moment. And the bells are ringing, and especially if you're a man, there's these beautiful hostesses coming around half naked giving you drinks and stuff. And you get trapped there. And the longer you play, the more you lose. Present-oriented people tend to be impulsive, that they want things now. And if it's not now, then they're going to take, take emotional action. There's a novel by Jonathan Duren, Drugs and Rock and Roll, but I couldn't resist taking a picture of this. The subtitle is Imagine a Life with No Fear of Consequences. Sounds great, except that is a recipe for all addictions, okay? Because present hedonists never think about consequences. They don't think about them, so it's not even a fear of consequences. It's consequences never enter their mind. It is realistic to be present hedonistic if you grow up in the inner city. Because you don't control anything. You're the last to be hired, the first to be fired. your life is controlled by economic forces outside of your control, by, by the welfare agency, by your social worker. Most people who are college-educated are, are heavily on the future-oriented side of the scale. So you're going to say, "Yeah, characteristic of me. Uh, I'm able to resist temptations. I know there's the time is the big thing that weighs you down. You make these endless to-do lists. So the question is, what temptations? Well, friends, family, obviously sex. So everybody gets five scores to form a profile and then we relate these scores to many other psychological tests. We had a sample of 205 students from College of San Mateo. These are older students and uh, we gave them this scale plus 12 other standard scales. And I'm going to present very quickly some of the data. And those of you who, who do research in personality individual differences know that in general when you correlate any two personality tests you get correlations on the order of 0.2 or 0.3, rarely 0.4. And that means it explains very little of the variance. But we come to expect that. We come to expect it's, if you have a large sample, it's statistically significant if you get a correlation of 0.2 or 0.3. So I say that as a base rate to look at these correlations. So people who are high on future time perspective, the correlation with a scale of conscientiousness is 0.70. Correlation of intelligence test, test-retest is 0.71. Prefer consistency, 0.60. High ego control, 0.50. High energy, 0.40 impulse control. What they have low levels of is negative on sensation seeking, ne- negative on aggression, negative on depression. So this is a profile of somebody who's highly future-oriented. There's only a few of the data sets we have. If you're past positive, it's really also good. You are happy. You have a positive self-esteem. You're friendly. You have moderate levels of anxiety and creativity, but low levels of anxiety, depression, and aggression. So this, again, is somebody you want to have around. What about those present hedonists? Look at this profile. Novelty seeking, 0.70. Sensation seeking, 0.70. Nobody else is even, it's not on the scale for anybody else. High on energy, but high on aggression and high on creativity. But low levels of ego under control, 0.75. There's almost no study I know in all of individual difference that gets a correlation that prefer consistency. No impulse control. No conscientiousness. No emotional stability. Not saying no, but it's heavily minus. The two time perspective characteristics that we are urging clinicians to monitor, especially in normally functioning populations. Now these are college students functioning. They're answering questions which say, "I am essentially a present fatalist." High in aggression, high in anxiety, high in depression. That's a killer trio. Low on concern for the future, minus 70. They don't give a shit about the future. Low self-esteem, low conscientiousness, low energy level, low emotional stability, low on happiness. That's a recipe for failure. If you score these kids in freshman year, you can predict these kids can't possibly finish college. They are likely to be in serious emotional uh, trouble. What about past negative? People who always recycle the past. Anxiety, 0.75. Depression, 0.70. Aggression, 0.60. Again, a killer triad. When you throw in that aggression component, these are the kids who are likely to become shooters. That is, anxious, depressed, and all they have to do is have a reason and a gun. These are the kids who are potentially dangerous. And low levels, they have low self-esteem. They don't think well of themselves. Low emotional stability, low impulse control, they're not happy, low energy. That is a sad profile. And especially if you get any kid who has relatively high on past negative and p- present fatalism, that's somebody you want to have a red star next to. say These are kids who need serious attention, serious counseling. Some years ago, a social psychologist named Walter Michelle, who was teaching at Stanford then, now he's at Columbia, did a wonderful, simple study. He got four-year-old kids in preschool nursery, and he played a game, and they won the game, and they got a treat namely a marshmallow, which kids liked. But then he had one condition. He said, you can have it now. Here it is. He put it right in front of them. But if you wait until I come back, you can have two. And he leaves the room and he waits outside for a while. And when he comes back, some kids have eaten them and some kids have not. It's really a study in resisting temptation. So, some kids are able to delay gratification. If you like a marshmallow, it obviously pays to wait to get two. For some kids, they could not resist. They were just overwhelmed by the sight of it, the smell. Some of them touched it, they licked it, and finally they couldn't resist. Well, the ability to delay gratification turns out to be incredibly important because 14 years later, he goes back. So, the amazing thing is that Walter Michel went back 14 years later, identified all the kids who was in his study when they're now 18, they finished high school. He found out lots of information about them. And that simple decision, did they delay gratification or did they not resist temptation, changed their whole life. These are two totally different groups of kids. So this is what Walter Michelle found. At 18, the kids who resisted temptation, delayed gratification in other ways, were assertive, cope well with frustration, were trustworthy, worked well under pressure were self-reliant and confident. These are reports from their teachers, were dependable, responded to reason, could concentrate, were eager to learn, were academically competent. They persevered on their plans. They scored 610 on the SAT verbal and 652 on SAT math, which is pretty high. The kids who were impulsive, we're going to call them present oriented. They could not delay gratification. They were indecisive. They overreacted to frustration. They were stubborn. They were overwhelmed by stress. They had a lower self-image, were not reliable, were prone to jealousy and envy. Provoked arguments, had sharp tempers, were poor students, gave up in the face of failure. My colleague Al Bandura would say they never developed a sense of self-efficacy. And on that SAT verbal they scored only 524 and on the SAT math 528. 250 points higher on the SAT that you could predict based on whether or not the kid ate a marshmallow at age 4 We're arguing this is a task parents should give their kids. And program in, build in delay of gratification. Now, it's not a causal relation. That's why I said these are correlates. So it's not having done this cause the other thing. It, it becomes part of a way of thinking. It really becomes part of a cognitive response. One of the reasons why people are unaware that they have a particular time sense, a particular time zone bias, is that many things influence it. Now, we're not born with it. Actually, at birth. We are little present hedonists. I mean, we live our life around a breast or a bottle. We want nourishment. We want to seek pleasure, avoid pain. And then education comes along, and if it's good education, it will move some of those little present-oriented beasties to be more future-oriented. In some cultures, that they promote the past. But the closer you live to the equator, the more present-oriented you are. And the reason is things don't change. That is, where seasons change, it's actually built into your mental equipment that – You're thinking about change. You're thinking about, well, right now, if you're in New York, it's the end of summer, the beginning of fall. But, you know, winter's coming. You're going to have to change your clothes and your wardrobe. It's like, you know, squirrels saving nuts. If you're in paradise, if you're in a tropical climate, every day is like yesterday. Essentially, what we see is that people who live there tend to live for the day, less likely to plan for the future, less likely to delay gratification. Catholics are more present oriented than Protestants throughout the world. And therefore, countries that are more Protestant have a higher gross national product because they're more future-oriented. And this comes out of the Calvinist revolution because, you know, what came out of the Calvinist revolution is the basic notion that Calvinists are predestined to heaven or hell. And the indication of where you're going after life is your worldly success. So that encouraged people to work their butts off and really to develop Protestant ethic, to work really hard so you would know you're going to heaven and not to hell. And also you could show other people that you would display, ostentatiously display your wealth, say, look, you know, I'm one of the the chosen. Uh, And that's really continued to to the uh, present day that Protestant – the Protestant ethic is really delaying gratification, waiting for the two marshmallows. Whereas in general, you know, Catholics, and, and uh, certainly Catholics, are more likely to, to live, live for the day. Most people, certainly in America and Western societies, are too excessively future-oriented. That means our life is controlled by work. Now there's almost no break between work and home life, work and, and play, because with computers, with the Internet, we bring work home. And it used to be work was eight hours, five days a week. Now work is 24-7. Mm-hmm. You take the work home with your, com- your computer. We have supermarkets that are open 24 hours a day, every day of the year. So we've really lost the old rhythm of natural nature, which used to be synchronized around seasons, or you know, in mm-hmm. agrarian societies around sowing and reaping and so forth. And now we are really a work-oriented society. I did a study that just came out in USA Today and it's a study of Americans' sense of being time crunched. They did a survey study 20 years ago. I used that data in my lectures, and the data said 50% of all Americans feel that life is really busy, and it's busier this year than last year, and they sacrifice lots of things in order to get their work done. And we redid it, and it's worse now, 20 years later. 70% of Americans describe their life as busy or excessively busy. Most of them say, I wish I had more time to be with friends and family. I sacrifice three things. Sacrifice time with friends, with family, fun, and sleep. These 7% of all Americans said, I sacrifice sleep. The argument we're making now is the ideal time perspective is a balance of being moderately hedonistic, taking the time off to have a drink after work, taking the time to have a massage, taking the time to go to a hot tub, taking the time to talk with friends. When you finish your work, you have to reward yourself. You have to be moderately future-oriented, otherwise you don't get anything done. So future-oriented people run the world. I mean, they are the ones who are successful in college, successful in work. But you also have to connect to the positive things in your past because that's where family is, that's where you are. Your identity is you over time. So if you are excessively future-oriented, the question is, who are you? You know what? For most people, they are their job. How can I rearrange my life even though I'm hardworking, even though I want to be successful, certainly as, you know, I grew up in New York. If you grew up in New York, there's the New York Minute. But, you know, New York is one of these places that have a really fast pace of life. You know, if you walk down any of the major streets, you walk slow, you're going to get trampled. Uh, if you're on the subway and you, and you stand, you don't make a move, you know, you're going to be knocked down. It's not that people are rude. It's that everybody is in a hurry. So essentially it's given how busy my life is, how do I make time? for the important things in life. And for me, the important things in life begin with family and extend to friends, extend to doing good for other people, extend to making contact with as many people as possible because people enrich your life uh, in ways that work rarely does. And the last thing is making time for yourself. That is to take time out, you know, for healthy things. I mean, like literally getting a massage on a regular basis, taking time out to enjoy sensuality, if you will, but the bottom line is each person has to make a decision as to what's really important in my life. For most people, you don't do it. You just say, here's my job, I got, you know, I'm working 16 hours a day, I don't get enough sleep, and I have nothing to do about it. Well, you really have to take the long-range view, is that you know, if you are excessively future-oriented, lots of surveys show that when you get to be middle-aged, you say, is that all there is? I'm really successful, but I've sacrificed friends, family, my sleep, uh, and, and my life. And now, especially for men, most men who have not made friends in college or high school in the military never have a single friend. They, n- they have lots of acquaintances and contacts, but they don't have a friend that they can care- that cares for them, that they can trust, that they can relate to. And that's really sad. Uh, and they don't because work comes first. And, ev- and everybody knows that. Including their kids. And they, won't, they they get to be 60 years old and they say, I should have spent more time with my kids. I should have spent more time with my wife. But it's too late. So you've got you to do it when you're younger.
0: Thanks for listening. Do you love Science in the City podcast? Support them by becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences. Visit org and click Join Now. Did you know you can subscribe to Science in the City podcast on iTunes and get our newest story downloaded every week automatically to your iTunes library? Search Science and the City in your iTunes search bar. Have questions or comments about our show? We would love your feedback. Send us an email at scienceinthecity at or leave us a voicemail at 212-298-8654. Want to know more about science in New York City? Visit scienceandthecity.org. See you next week.